Should we just start? Get bricks done. Get. Oh, wait. Leave all that in. No. We should. You know what? Here's a 2024 resolution. What? We're killing them fucking bully XLs. What is that? No, don't worry about it. What? What is up? What's your resolution? Resolution is complete transparency. Complete transparency. Complete transparency. Complete and transparency. In the uh, in that vein, I have to announce that I will be taking a leave of absence from the podcast. Um, I have my NGO uh, has been contracted by the British government by Rishi. Uh, to go over there, and we are doing the um, the we're conducting the euthanizations of the bully XLs uh, that that they're rolling out this year. I know that a lot of you are probably confused because obviously I run an anti racist NGO that charges twenty thousand dollars to have dinner with me and to have me explain, usually through half remembered stuff, uh, just about the entire history of racism um, from the cavemen to now. Uh, but we are going over there, and we are uh, we're going to kill those dogs. I mean, I think that's great for you, but I was just talking about like, you know, maybe a little more just transparency of like talking about how we're feeling and what we're doing with the audience. But I think what you're talking about sounds great. I'm really excited to kill those dogs. I'm a little puppy. My name is Brace. No, that's awful. Fine. I'm a big bully XL. Where's your fucking baby? Wait, so is bully XL just like big fat fucker? Like, was it big fat dog? Big fat fucker. Uh, I think that... uh, (laughs) Is he just like big boy, big boy season? I think they're just killing big dogs in England. Uh, I think it's a bull. I think it's just like a, I don't know. One it's of a pit fucking, bull, right? It's, it's like the dog that crackheads have. Big, well, I don't know about that, but big fat, big fat pit bull, right? Big, it's like a big ass pit bull. I think Bully XL, well, to me, Bully wanna, XL like, means one of those like inbred dogs that they have. Yeah, I think a lot of dogs. A lot are, of dogs are inbred. A lot of dogs are fucking yeah. inbred. Difficult uh, to maintain a purebred species and popularity without inbreeding. Is that what purebred means? No. Just like no inbreeding, no uh no, because I'm sure no, there's you're inbred, thinking no crossbreeding. Breeds. No crossbreeding. Yeah. A lot of this gets weird with the dogs. Huh? Mm. I feel like if they wanted to deter people from having big pit bull. Big bully pit bulls. What are they called? Mm-hmm. Bully XLs. Yeah, don't call them bully XL. That sounds cool. It sounds it's, kind of like a streetwear jacket company. It is t- yeah, well interesting because I feel like the, the word bully style bully XL brings to mind. First of all, the biggest bully XL of them all, Cartman. Why but, is everyone dressing like Ali G again? What? What? Hi everyone, my name's Liz. My name's Brace. What does that mean? And we are joined by producer Young Chomsky, and the podcast is called True Hello. Welcome Hello. to 2024. It is 2024. Did you feel different? No. Do you? Weight the, yeah, weight of the world's on my shoulders. Really? Well, no. But it could be. Mm. Maybe it should be. Uh, no, you know, I was New Year's Eve was wonderful as usual. You know, What'd I love to <sighs> Bacchanal, usual. Um mm. light orgy, 
uh, obviously opium and incense. Yeah, with dudes, incense. Um, You're gonna say incest. Inc- well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't check the fucking. I'm not checking IDs at the door, dude. I mean, it could be anybody in there. It's a puddle. Ew. Like you don't you don't check the fucking Ew, water stop, quality of the puddle. Stop! 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 Crazy wet in that motherfucker. So hello, but no, I went to a party and it was fun. Everyone, as you all should be aware, because you listen with bated breath to all of our announcements, we had an announcement earlier this week, and we're going to re-announce it right now. We are launching a board game. Yes, it's called Storm the Capital. It's based upon the events, upon the events. It's based upon the events. It's based on the events of January 6th, 2021, where you can take the role of one of six patriots trying to, you know, you pull over desks, get ballots, take hostages, and fight the police in order to get to the roof with a hundred ballots to win the fucking game. Or you can play as the pigs trying to prevent them from doing that by ten the end of ten turns. I don't know, I'm like getting into the rules here. When the National Guard tank comes and presumably kills everybody in the building, that is left unclear. It is a semi-complicated board game. I'm going to be honest. I keep saying it's semi-complicated because even though I came up with a lot of the rules, I haven't really played other board games. Uh, Other people who've played it have, and so it's not like it's like completely made up, but... Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think it's complicated to me. It's like much more complicated than like Monopoly or something like that. There's a uh, lot of different ways you can play it. There's a lot of different ways you can play it. And it's fun. And it takes It is fun. It it's a, a board while. game. It's fun for all people 18 and over, we'll mm-hmm. say. On, and on every side of the political spectrum, too. Yeah. Left, right, center, above, below. Everybody. All the different angles that don't exist in this dimension. All are welcome. Um, and it's super fun. We've all played it. We are putting it out with our good friends, Cream Hound, this exclusive True Anon edition, which will be available January 6th. Isn't that cute? Mm-hmm. 2024 at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern, only at trueanon.com. That's our website. It's called trueanon.com. You can That's buy the true game anon. there. trueanon.com. Um, and it's, I think it's going to sell out you guys. So we really want you to be able to get a copy before it's gone. Mm-hmm. Much like. Like what? Like the, like a lot of hopes of turning like over the election in 2020, but maybe we, in 2024, new resolution, you can turn the election tides once again and deliver Trump the hundred ballots he needs and win the game and affection of all your friends as you play Storm the Capitol, exclusive Truanon edition, available January 6th at truanon.com. See, you like that? Important caveat. You do need three to preferably six friends to play this game with. But yeah. But also, also just, who's using Craigslist anymore? Who's using Craigslist? Yeah, exactly. You know what? That's a good question. Hit who the is line. Using Craigslist? Hit the line. If you, if you don't know who to call, hit the line. Not I my saw line. you on the bus. You look I, you fucking know. beautiful. Yeah, try it. See he what happens. So fucking hot on the board. Hey, want to play this board Trump game. game with me? See see who comes by. Um, cool. Well, yeah, please please buy it. We'll link to it in the notes. We'll link to some other things in the notes because we have an interview. There we go. That's a transition. You like that one? 
I do. Actually, wait, real quick. I have one quick thing that I have to say. A little personal okay. announcement, but okay. it's not personal. And then I'll let you enter the episode. Because this is our show and we can do what we want, right? Facts. Especially in 2024. So I want to give a little shout out to some people who I think are listening, which is the lovely staff at a little bookstore called Labyrinth Books in Princeton, New Jersey, who just recently voted to unionize, which is very cool. And if you are ever in the, I don't know, New Jersey or tri-state or New York area, you should stop on by. It's a great bookstore. Um, everyone who works there is lovely and extremely helpful and um, just great to talk to. And I really like them. And I just want to give them a little shout out because it's tough to do that. It's tough to do that, especially right before the holidays. But they they uh, they all voted unanimously to unionize. And uh, so, yeah, you should stop by the store, support them, tell them good job. And you can say I sent them. A uh, little transparency thing here is – a lot of listeners don't know this, but if you go to Liz's house, it is filled with copies of the book Me Talk Pretty Someday. And because Liz loves saying that out loud, she's always like, Me Talk Pretty Someday, Me Talk Pretty Someday. And so I know for a fact that she has dropped about five what they call racks at this, uh, this now unionized bookstore for copies of Me Talk Pretty Someday. So if you want to talk pretty someday, do exactly what Liz said. But you know how who talks pretty someday? In fact, most days, but in fact, only some of them is British people, one of which we have on this episode. <laughs> uh, to give a little context here, um, the war on Gaza, Israel's sort of relentless bombing campaign and invasion of the Gaza Strip, uh, has affected things far outside just the immediate issue of uh, support for Israel from uh, almost unanimous support from most Western uh, governments. It is a huge issue, and it is affecting. I mean, we talked. We had to fucking talk about the president of Harvard, who has, as of I think, like an hour ago, stepped down. But you know, it is, it is, it is something that is kind of getting on everything. And as a sort of side consequence of that, uh, it has been a very um, big flashpoint for a lot of people uh, who might be opposed to left-wing causes in general who see this as a sort of opening to strike at what they perceive as a vulnerability on the left because they have learned from uh, basically what happened to Jeremy Corbyn in the post-2017 Labor Party uh, that there are certain issues which you can push and pull and prod on that are very difficult uh, to come back from. And one of those was the uh, so-called labor anti-Semitism crisis, uh, which we have talked about a little bit on this show before. Um, and I think I've actually even shouted out this, uh, this, this documentary series, but Al Jazeera's, uh, investigative unit did a five part documentary series called the labor files based upon a huge leak of uh, trove of leaked documents, a, a tranche, a tranche, you might say of leaked documents, uh, from the labor party, uh, that show that, the media narrative that was concocted uh, was, was first of all, expertly done, but second of all, a narrative that was concocted. Uh, and it has been an event with, uh, as we go into in the episode, a huge fallout that continues to affect um, things today and, and would probably even affect uh, maybe what's going on in Gaza this moment. Um, the consequences of this 
may it may sound like a a uh, internal matter for a Western political party, but it actually has pretty far reaching consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And for whatever reason, I'm gonna put my hands up in the air right now, transparently putting my hands up. Uh, not a lot of media has covered Al Jazeera's investigation into this. Um, in fact, it's been basically radio silence from all British media. <laughs> yeah, it really has gotten like no traction. Um, yeah. So do your duty, putting your hand up to your head, and not only listen to this interview we have, but um, watch the watch the documentary. It's fantastic. It's eye-opening. It's disturbing. It's upsetting. All of those great, horrible emotions that, that you have when you watch a good film. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Truanon, and welcome with our greatest compliments and good tidings to 2024. We have with us today, going back in time in the time machine, which will be also going forward once we get in it to the present day, we have Richard Sanders, producer of Al Jazeera's, or one of the producers of Al Jazeera's The Labor Files, here to talk with us about uh, about that series, about specifically the second episode, and more broadly about the the claims of anti-Semitism and the uh, great links at which certain forces in British society uh, went to prevent Jeremy Corbyn from becoming prime minister. Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, Bryce. Hi, Liz. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. So this has, um, I mean, I think our listeners will be a little, will be pretty familiar with the rise and then, of, you know, of course, unfortunately, subsequent fall of Jeremy Corbyn, who it seems now in 2024 has been almost erased from uh, British political history and mm -hmm. certainly labor history. I mean, I remember it wasn't that long ago, maybe like six, seven, eight months ago, I remember Brace and I having a conversation where we were like, oh my God, Keir Starmer might actually become prime minister. This is crazy. This was completely unthinkable in, I don't know, 2016, <laughs> let alone 2017, um, and then became unfortunately more and more thinkable post-2019 and 2020. So here we are, and we should talk about how and why... Uh, you know, some of Jeremy Corbyn's political career has been kind of erased from history because back in 2017, he was an extremely popular politician within the Labour Party. Maybe we can start from there. You can walk us through what happened. And he actually remains a fairly popular politician within the Labour Party, within the Labour Party's shrinking um, membership. If we go back to the beginning. I mean, you're absolutely right. 2017, it has to be remembered, Jeremy Corbyn almost won the general election of 2017. Mm -hmm. He suddenly deprived the Conservatives of an overall majority. Um, he got the best result the Labour Party had got since Blair. Um, he got a better, uh, even in 2019, when he lost, he got a better result than the Labour Party had in 2010 and 2015, which you would not think to listen to and read British media now. You, you would think mm. it's just taken as given he's the greatest catastrophe that ever occurred in, yeah. in British politics. Now, yeah, if you go back to the beginning with Corbyn, 
the obvious parallel with American politics is Bernie Sanders. Now, there's a difference. Firstly, I think Jeremy Corbyn is a slightly more radical politician um, than, than, than Bernie. He's also, in a way, not quite as substantial a figure. It's hard. You, you have to stress how much of a shock it was when Corbyn won the leadership contest in, in 2015, mm-hmm. in September 2015. Jeremy Corbyn was a man who'd spent his life on the back benches. He'd never held ministerial position. He was a serial rebel. I think he'd voted against the, the Labour whip, that is the sort of instruction of how the party should vote, over 500 times. Mm. Um, he, was, he was a very passionate constituency MP, very popular with you know the, the constituency that elected him. He was very interested in foreign affairs, had his own sort of causes that he'd always espoused, going all the way back to Chile in 1973, but particularly um, the Palestinian cause. A deeply mm-hmm. principled man, but a man who didn't appear ever to have been especially interested in power. Now, the way it happened on what's called the hard left of the Labour Party is they used to take it in turns whenever there was a, <laughs> a, an election for the leadership of the Labour Party. You know, the, the very small group of them would get together and say, you're right, your turn, your turn. <laughs> I, I, think, I think Jeremy Corbyn rather resents this interpretation, but the, the story that is, is told is that you know, it was simply his turn and, and he stood. Now, you have to get a certain number of, of, of votes to even be allowed to run, and he wasn't going to get them. And various mm. politicians of the sort of centre of the late party actually you know, proposed him simply for the sake of you know, there being a debate and there being a range of candidates. Now, he clearly tapped into some sort of a zeitgeist, and it was a particular moment in politics. It was the moment that threw up Bernie. It was the moment that threw up Trump. It was the moment that would shortly lead to, to Brexit in Britain. It was a moment of profound discontent with, with the status quo. And anyone who appeared to be outside of the status quo and, and appeared to be, quote, authentic, but, you know, people mm. were obsessing, obsessively searching for this, this mm. thing could, called authenticity, seemed to have some sort of kudos. Anyway, so Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn becomes leader of the Labour Party. And uh, <laughs> the entire British establishment is in, in a state of shock about this because yes. uh, it, it's sort of unthinkable. And the Labour Party is, the Labour Party's parliamentary party and its bureaucracy is in a state of shock. And I, I, it, what happened with the Labour files with our series is we were basically handed the party's server. We had everything. We had the entire internal correspondence of the Labour Party, which is why we made the series. Now, so that's internal documents, chat logs, yeah, everything, you know, WhatsApp. Everything. I mean, everything that it's quite embarrassing for a lot of yes, people. It's pretty embarrassing, particularly the WhatsApp groups. You have this strange yes. phenomenon of government by WhatsApp these days, where Group people chats. set up these um, set up these WhatsApp chats and and. I don't know, somehow I think they'll never see the light of time and then they do, uh, which is very embarrassing. I mean, you have these extraordinary chat rooms, which are the senior management of the Labour Party talking about Jeremy Corbyn in the most appalling terms. I mean, I think, you know, what we all know and knew was that the the sort of the press, the establishment had it in for, for, for Corbyn from the first and went for him. What the documentation revealed was that one of the, the enormous problem he had was, was that the not just the parliamentary Labour Party, but also the bureaucracy of the Labour Party had it in for him. Now, there's obvious parallels here with with Hillary and Bernie in 2016, and with the mm-hmm. whole Russia thing. Everyone forgets what it was that the Russian things revealed, which was the party bureaucracy, which should have been impartial, was clearly inclining towards Hillary. 
Right. Yeah, we had, we had a similar issue with like uh, you know a lot of the of people. Yeah, again in the party bureaucracy, but with like the super delegates and and these sort of like. I guess a, a big parallel to kind of like the chicken coup uh, style of trying to take out Corbin um, of this these internal wranglings and maneuverings to try to uh, to try to undercut Bernie, which well, they didn't end up well. They needed the superdelegates, but yeah, it was it's very similar in that way. Yes, I mean, with the difference, of course, that, that Corbyn did win the leadership yes. election and became the party's leader, and even so, they continued to maneuver against him. I mean, one of the great problems um, Jeremy Corbyn had, and one of, you know, this is one of the great ironies of the story, is that although he's portrayed as, as this appalling sort of hardline Trotskyist, you, you couldn't encounter a, re- a less ruthless politician. Mm. And one of the paradoxes of this whole story is that the, the people who behave like a ruthless Trotskyist sect are the right of the Labour Party, yeah. and 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 Corbyn is just you know he's just taken to the cleaners really. He's just not ready for this level of of political ruthlessness. He's assassinated really. Speaking of ruthless Trotskyite sects, uh, there is a great deal of attention paid by the uh, internal Labour Party bureaucracy, and in the first part of your uh, of of the documentary series. Uh, to militant, which was the uh, in the nineteen eighties the uh, the sort of left wing side of the Labour Party, which which uh, took over the Liverpool City Council and was a pretty potent force within the Labour Party before being crushed uh, by the right wing of the party, which sort of gave birth to uh, I guess the modern right of the Labour Party, which as as you guys point out in the documentary was a pretty formative moment for uh, a lot of people on the right wing of Labour. Um, and when Jeremy Corbyn came in, uh, I, you know, the Labour Party functions in a very strange way where there's these, these sort of constituent groups within it. Uh, but the broad membership uh, was actually, you know, there was not that many people who were sort of rank and file members of the Labour Party. Uh, and one thing that Corbyn did within his leadership is he really opened up membership and a ton of people joined. And Something that becomes very clear is that a lot of the people who joined under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership were 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 fans of Jeremy Corbyn, were proponents of his policies, um, and with that in, as the backdrop, it became so blindingly obvious that kind of whatever the internal party bureaucracy and their friends in the media and and the Tory Party and elsewhere uh, did was was they they realized that they had a growing force on their hands and they had to tamp it down by any means necessary. Mm. Yes, you're right. I mean, the, the, bringing in militant is very um, relevant. You're, you're right. The right of the Labour Party is shaped by memories of militant in, in the 1980s. Militant was a ruthless Trotskyite sect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was fairly small. That was the thing about militant. Now, it was quite clear when you read the internal documentation of the Labour Party that as momentum appeared, momentum being um, the sort of grassroots movement which supported Corbyn, when that appeared, they simply thought they were seeing militant again. They equated momentum with militant. Now, the huge difference was that momentum was a mass movement, which militant never was. Militant was a sort of activist um, movement of the type we're we're sort of more familiar with. Uh, And so they had this mass movement. You had this extraordinary surge in the membership of the Labour Party. The, The Labour Party soared to over half a million members. It became the largest political party in in Western Europe. And one of the very sad elements of the whole story is that you have this almost a visceral reaction, certainly from the right of the party, which which appears to be very uncomfortable with large numbers of new members and and reacts to this surge in membership by seeking to sort of expel or repel as many of them 
as possible. I mean, again, to look at the American parallel, I'm, al- I'm always very struck with the Democratic Party, which again is, you know, rife with factionalism uh, and where the right tends to be in control. But, but it seems to me that Democratic Party leaders and, and candidates never do what Starmer has done and what Blair did before him, which is to define themselves against the left, to positively court the electorate by performatively beating up the left wing of their own party. Now, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I I don't really see Biden or Clinton or people doing that in the same way, whereas... I, I would say they don't really necessarily need to. I mean, the the left of the Democratic Party, such as it is, is vanishingly small um, and and extremely fact, disorganized. Extremely disorganized, and the fact is, is that they can pretty much count on those people's votes um, come election time, no matter what, just by by ramping up like the the fascism card or something like that. I mean, it's it's it's. I will yeah. say like there is it's and it's 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 much less organized I guess in the way that like you know there's these sort of like organizations like Justice Democrats or whatever but again they only have like four or five people in You have the squad though who are fairly fairly impressive I mean the, the left of the Labour Party is not organized either which is why it was such a shock when they suddenly right. took control yeah. of the party in 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 2015 um but but they the it is quite extraordinary, and you see it most clearly in the WhatsApp groups, the absolute mm-hmm. loathing the right has for the left of the party. And once Corbyn in control was in control, that meant for the leader of the party. Uh, and the, it doesn't seem to occur to people that they, you know, they shouldn't really be drawing their salaries and continuing to work for the Labour Party if they, they, they so viscerally loathe its leader. Now, you know, some people would say they they used their positions to actively undermine him. I mean, certainly it's the case that they weren't working for him. We have this extraordinary exchange on election night in 2017 in these WhatsApp chats where one of the senior officials in the Labour Party says, you know, they're all cheering and whooping and we're we're ashen-faced. And I think she actually says something like, precisely the opposite of what I've been working for for the last yes. two years. And so so you what know, you're referring to here is that Corbyn almost winning is what, what's making That's this. right. In 20, exactly. Um, they, 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 they reacted to Corbyn almost winning with absolute shock. There's a very good book actually called Left Out by two Times journalists. So, you know, two men who ultimately worked for Rupert Murdoch. And they they have a very good account of um, McNichol, the general secretary of the party, the head of the bureaucracy, turning up for work the following day after the general election of 2017. And he's, you know, he's, he's got a face like thunder. And he disappears into his office, shuts the door, and they hear this great crash. And he's drop kicked a vase across the room. I mean, that's his reaction to the Labour Party almost winning. I mean, everyone assumed that um, the Labour Party would be absolutely wiped out. Yeah. Uh, and what these people were doing were in, in, by their own lights was trying to preserve a core of right-wing politicians. I mean, they were actually diverting funds secretly from the main election pot right. to prop up certain right-wing MPs and so on. And it was a huge... And I have to confess, I was stunned as well. Corbyn is being daily annihilated by the press, daily annihilated by his own parliamentary party. We now know by his own party bureaucracy he was being completely undermined. And yet, once the election campaign starts and the British public gets to encounter him directly, as opposed to through the the, the sort of prism of the British media, he just goes up 
vertically in the polls. He starts the election campaign at 24, 25%, and on election day hits 40%. Um, you know, which is quite a lot in in British electoral terms, and 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 it's a catastrophic miscalculation by the Prime Minister Theresa May, who has called an election mm-hmm. precise. Who had had she had an overall majority, she didn't right. need to do this. She called it precisely because she thought Corbyn's now leader of the Labour Party, and I'll be able to build up this enormous majority for myself. And it was the opposite. It was absolutely the opposite, and, and you're right, absolutely right. At that point, the British establishment really. Takes, right. takes fright. And the right. sort of get Corbyn campaign really seriously goes into overdrive at that point. And, you know, this is where we might bring in the whole anti-Semitism thing. Yeah. I mean, I you know, basically you go from him being this, you know, having this massive surge to shocking everyone, including the sitting prime minister with his popularity in 2017 to then like two years later. I mean, I think that by the end of the summer of 2019, you could just say, what you could say that Jeremy Corbyn had killed, you know, entire families uh, in a rampage with no proof or whatever, and everyone would run it in any tabloid. Where you yeah. could say whatever you Jeremy wanted. Jeremy Corbyn knife crime. Yeah, I mean, and and any politician, any person, any media member could say anything they wanted about Jeremy Corbyn, and it was it was a total free for all, and he was completely disgraced. So how did we go from that? in such a short span? There are two things that happen. There are two things that destroy Jeremy Corbyn. The more important, of course, is Brexit. Um, mm-hmm. The thing that dominates British politics in this period is Brexit. Uh, and the Labour Party, they, they have this enormous problem. Britain votes for Brexit in 2016. It then becomes blindingly clear that all the people who have pushed Brexit have no idea how to introduce, how to actually implement Brexit. We have we have this. We really don't want to go into the details of this, but we have this problem of the Irish border, where we can't have a border. But if you're going to reclaim your yeah. borders, you've got to have a border. So that would they, be like a four-hour podcast. Yes, we don't. We really That's don't want to go into that. <laughs> we really don't want to. Wait, you guys I, are I, telling I, me there's two different Irelands? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, so we really don't want to go into that. But anyway, it, it, where the issue of Europe in the past had always divided the Conservative Party, it now divided the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Um, the enormous problem he has, and I actually don't think any Labour leader could have solved this problem, was mm-hmm. that while 80% of the Labour membership was pro-Remain and anti-Brexit, 70% of the Labour Party's primarily working-class constituencies had a Brexit majority. There was a disconnect between its yeah, working-class right. voters and its 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 now very large um, membership. And what what Corbyn tries to do is he 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 introduces various pretty illogical fudges. But I'm not quite sure what else he could do. To be honest, I mean, it was. A, I, it was I remember absolute... this at the time and being like, "Wow, this is it is truly like an unsolvable puzzle because it was yeah. exactly." I, I agree. I don't think that any labor leader or anybody could have done anything differently. Yeah, um, yeah. Because well, you, of course, the you, conservatives have their problem. But they 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 can't resolve this issue of the Irish border. So in the end, Boris Johnson comes along and you know, frankly, tells a series of lies. And and everyone is so exhausted. Well, lying by that always point. works. That's yeah, well, it did. It, it certainly worked in the autumn of 2019. And um, and and he does a deal with Nigel Farage, who's the leader of the sort of Brexit right. party. And so basically, mm-hmm. the right pro Brexit forces are united the left anti-Brexit forces are divided and you get this overwhelming um, majority. That's the core reason. The the anti-Semitism thing, although it played an enormous role, is actually subsidiary to that. If you actually look at the polls, the polls are reacting to the Brexit stuff. Okay, through 2018, 
Corbyn is being absolutely crucified over the anti-Semitism thing doesn't really affect the polls. It's it's a you know sort of a, it's a thing that obsesses obsesses the political media class. The evidence is that the, the general public is less concerned, but it does inevitably undermine him. It undermines his moral authority, and it also distracts him. He, it means he's having to rather than pushing this bold social democratic vision, he's endlessly on the back foot having to defend right. himself a- against the charge that he's an anti-Semite, a charge that he, he proves peculiarly ill-equipped to defend himself against. Ideologically, he doesn't seem to be able to do it, but I think emotionally, it's enormously painful for him. Here is a man whose whole career is built on anti-racism, and suddenly everyone's telling him he's a racist. And it, it just sort of disarms him in a strange sort of way. Well, let's talk about where that comes from, because I think that's a that's a big part of the story, right? Where I mean, you know, these the claims of anti-Semitism proved to be shockingly effective. Um, I think even caught some Corbinites by surprise, who you know maybe wanted to be generous in ways that maybe they shouldn't have been to some of those claims, um, because it seemed to be so uh, on its face. Absurd, and yet it made a, an incredibly lasting impression on the British public, and was deployed very, very, very effectively. Yes, I mean, I think where, where do they come from? They come from the Israel lobby, um, mm-hmm. now, which is, you know, as in America, surprisingly powerful, disproportionately uh, powerful. In Britain, very disproportionately powerful. I mean, Britain's Jewish community is very small, really, even proportionally compared to America. But while the Israel lobby is powerful, it isn't that powerful. The, the, the problem that happens is that um, all sorts of other groups alight on this right. as, the, as the perfect weapon with which to destroy um, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, so you have you know, the, the, the centre ground. The, the BBC is disgraceful on this issue, as is ITN, the supposedly impartial um, mm-hmm. broadcast media, obviously the right-wing press. So you have the spectacle of the Daily Mail, which actually supported, you know, was sort of well, uh, an apologist, certainly for Hitler in the 1930s, leading the great <laughs> campaign against, you know, rather like Marine Le Pen leading the recent anti, right. anti-anti-Semitism yeah. demos. In, you know, you're, you, some of the people who were jumping on the bandwagon, one, one would have thought people would smell a rat, really. But anyway, they didn't. Well, it became it became sort of rather uh, unfashionable to be anti-Semitic among circles that had previously embraced it after World War II, and they sort of groped around in the dark for a long time. I mean, they could hate you know Jamaicans and and then 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 uh, the the Asians and the Asian grooming gangs came in. They're like, all right, well, we can just transfer all of our whatever uh, you know ethnic and and maybe religious enmity uh, from from Jewish people onto to Muslims. Yes, I mean Islamophobia is certainly a very strong yeah. force, and in, it's in, very, in, very. It's that's that's one thing that runs as a through line throughout all of this. Uh, is that you can say whatever you want about Jeremy Corbyn, and indeed whatever you want about also in addition to his any 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 Muslims that he might be uh, in any way allied with, whether they're uh, you know politicians or you know Palestine, the issue or the, the uh, it, it's it's that's all fine, but. Um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn commenting on mural is is uh, yeah, and also yeah. I think there's a difference here. I, you know, I'm not suggesting for a moment there's no such thing as anti-Semitism no. in Britain, or even that it you know lingers in certain parts of the left. I, 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 you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I always sense 
that it's much stronger in America, where it turns it, it ties into the whole center against the the peripheries um, thing. Uh, and you know, when I look at the evidence that was being touted around within the Labour Party for people's anti-Semitism, invariably you know, rather stupid or naive people had somehow ended up with some meme that they'd have picked up from an alt-right website in America. That's where most of these memes came from. And, you know, in looking into this, it strikes me that there is a, you know, there is a virulent right-wing anti-Semitism. Um, in, in, America? in America? Certainly. In America. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I, there's also just like, are, we have a, a large degree of like right-wing philo-Semitism, and which is indistinguishable at points from anti-Semitism. Uh, yeah, yeah. as well. I mean, it's yeah. just, yeah. yeah. I mean, so we, one of the things we, we did was to look in, in enormous detail at the Labour Party's disciplinary files. And so, you know, what are we dealing with here? So I think the first thing to say is there is such a thing as left-wing anti-Semitism as it, and it does sometimes masquerade as anti-Zionism. I think as a force, if one is concerned about racism, it, it pales into insignificance next to the problems of, of Islamophobia, anti-black racism and so on. There's perhaps then a slightly larger number of people um, who are rather unsophisticated and might fall into rather lazy tropes. I mean, particularly when one is talking about the, the power of the Israel lobby, because in unsophisticated hands, that can definitely start to sound like and perhaps even become um, you know, traditional conspiracy theories about Jewish power, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you have... You, you have um, unsophisticated people. And you've got to remember that the Labour Party's membership had swelled enormously. And one of the things that had happened is that a lot of people had joined the party who, you know, hadn't been involved with politics before and so on. Um, so was this entirely um, smoke without fire? No, I mean, there's an element of truth to it. But what, when you really looked carefully at the disciplinary folders. What had happened was the triumph of what's called the new anti-Semitism, which is basically to define anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism. And I think that's all the more effective because my own experience of liberal Zionists is frequently that in the heart of hearts, they sort of do think anti-Zionists are probably yes. at the very least a bit suspect. Because to be clear what we're talking about here, in, in Britain, anyway, it's not actually the case that you can't criticize Israel. You can, and people do. Now, you have to be a bit careful about it, and you have to be careful about the words you use, and you, have, you know, and you, you can't, you know, people should criticize it more, but you can. What you cannot do is to articulate the core Palestinian position, basically, that mm -hmm. creating an ethnically defined homeland um, or, or an ethnically defined state in a territory which at the beginning of the process is entirely populated by people of a different ethnicity can only be done through ethnic cleansing, through the you know, subjugation of through apartheid and so on, which is of course precisely what's happened. Now, you know, pointing out, you know, what Palestinians might call the bleeding obvious is what you're not allowed to do. Uh, and the whole thing actually came down to that, that we we have to maintain this pre pretense that Israel is a Western democracy, a flawed Western democracy, one that's got increasingly unpleasant people in government, blah, blah, blah. What, what you cannot do is to say Israel is South Africa, Israel is a racist ethnic yes. state. That is the thing you're not allowed to do. And, and to a degree, the whole thing that happened can be seen as people just determinedly tugging that veil and keeping it in place. So, I mean, what, what, what happened, at least in, in my view from an American, what I saw happen was this enormous surge of the left that was backing Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and Jeremy Corbyn, who had 
very vocal pro-Palestinian views. I mean, you include this bit in the documentary, but he said he would it would immediately recognize Palestine as a state, you know, it, when he came into office. And all of these different forces that were arrayed against him within British society, some of which were, you know, heavily, heavily Zionist, but then some of which were just, you know, against him for for the the usual reasons that, uh, you know, uh, uh, political forces in advanced Western capitalist countries would not want a social democrat like Jeremy Corbyn in office. Uh, but they saw that this issue was in particular very effective. And how did, and, 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 you know, you mentioned the complaints too, which is a large part of what the, the labor files and indeed like the labor anti-Semitism crisis sort of arises out of. And that was something that was sort of like repeated ad nauseum. It was a really good way to kind of see how the media worked because you saw this kind of manufactured crisis, right? Like, oh, this number comes out. There's been, you know, tens of thousands of complaints about anti-Semitic abuse within the labor party, you know, with the implication that it's coming from these pro-Corbyn people who join the party. Uh, and then the you know the right wing press or the the BBC or the you know the the press in writ large runs with those complaints, and then all of a sudden the story is is that Jeremy Corbyn has under his 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 coattails uh, of his frocked coat brought along you know these hordes of screaming you know raging anti semites, many of whom are Muslim along with him in the Labour Party. Well, many and of them are is, Jewish, more to the point. I mean, well, that, <laughs> that was actually an inconvenient fact and, yeah. uh, for, for the press in, in a lot of ways. In but, fact, uh, for, they're, they're more likely. I mean, you know, Muslims, as a general rule, in my experience, are intimidated into silence on this issue. Uh, you know, the problem here was so many of these people were Jewish. Well, yes. And then, so, so one thing that the Labour files reveal is that, like, the total um, just bankrupt... Uh, quality to these this this uh, complaints process, and how much of that was steered by this unelected labor bureaucracy, uh, who were able to manufacture this crisis, feed it to the media, and then have the media feed it back to the public until it becomes the the reality. Yeah, and for me, that was what was terribly disappointing. You have the BBC and ITN, which are obliged to be impartial. The Guardian, which is the great organ of the English liberal middle classes. <laughs> yes. And um, they they just totally swallowed it, hook, line, and yeah. sinker. It was disgraceful. I and mean, in a way, that was partly what motivated me. I mean, I, it was either slamming my head against the wall every morning for, you know, or actually, you know, doing some work on this and writing about it. Because the thing is, going back to what I was saying about anti-Zionism, if you decide, if, if your view is that Israel is not a racist ethnostate, it's just one that makes some mistakes, um, and it's already on the one hand this, on the other hand that issue, then people's anger and passion becomes rather incomprehensible to you. And it's very easy to start interpreting that level of anger and passion as being in some way sinister. It becomes mm. twisted and turned in on itself. As hate. I mean, as hate, yes. And hate marches, as, as these things are called. I mean, you know, imagine fighting the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. And, and you're surrounded all the time by people saying, no, no, no! It's it's Mandela and Tutu who are the racists. I mean, the whole thing becomes completely tangled, and 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 you know, it's important to remember that all of Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and Bet Salem, the Israeli human rights group, all have now judged Israel to be guilty of the crime of apartheid. So we we have this bizarre situation for five years where the 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 entire media political establishment is turning its anti anti racist spotlight ferociously, relentlessly, not on the apartheid state and its supporters, 
but away from the apartheid state and towards its victims and their supporters. It's I mean, it's, it's quite odd, really, when you you, you step step back uh, and think about it. But it was very. But the you know you you can look at the the characters um, involved here: Laura Kunzberg, Emily Maitlis, Robert Heston. The people who are the the political correspondents of the BBC and ITN who carry enormous weight because they are the sensible, nice, probably a bit liberal um, white middle class people. And they clearly, you know, totally bought into this narrative um, and, and just didn't. I mean, they ran with it. Oh, they ran with it. They ran with it. It was appalling. It was, it was dreadful. It, It was dreadful to watch. I mean, it's, you know, one of the few examples where you see the the, the 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 fuzzy middle ground just getting it completely wrong. And I've no doubt at all that in 30, 40 years' time, people will be writing university theses about this bizarre, you know, bizarre episode in, in, in British political history and how it could have happened. Well, it was it was so strange to watch at the time because it seemed so blindingly obvious what was happening. I mean, you had Jeremy Corbyn, who, as his supporters quite rightly uh, you know, would reinforce when when giving statements to the press is somebody who has been a lifelong campaigner uh, for, against racism in all its forms. You know, there's famous pictures of him being arrested at uh, you know, anti-apartheid struggles. You know, he is he is somebody who has completely dedicated his life in a very real way uh, to 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 this form of of struggle and. Um, it, just to be completely tarred as probably Britain's biggest racist uh, by not only you know the the rest of his not the rest of his party but a a, a lot of people and uh, MPs within his own party but by the conservatives and uh, by the more uh, I guess National Front descended groups uh, that were were are prevalent and renamed themselves every few years EDL or Britain First or or whatever who are all very pro Israel. Very yes, and that, that was actually one of the really astounding things from um, that I learned from your documentary. Uh, you know, there's a famous uh, incident in the pantheon of Jeremy Corbyn's anti-Semitic incidents, where uh, he accused a, a a group of pro-Israel people of not understanding British irony. And f- correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but one of those people was a member of Britain First. Um. Sharon Class. Oh, no, no, no. She, 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 she had. Uh, um, no, it was the oh, English Defence League. She's oh, not a me- well, but not a member, but she'd voiced very active support and continuing support for them. And the other two had previously sort of, you know, effectively worked with the English Defence League for a period. It was very interesting. This, these three characters, or two of them in particular, were right at the heart of all this. They were providing a lot of the stories. There were a lot of the energy bubbling away at the heart of it. Now, you know, back in two thousand and ten, there had been this sort of furore where these activists these pro-Israel activists, which is what they are, had been working with the English Defence League, with, uh, with mm-hmm. Tommy Robinson and so on. And now, can you this, explain to our American listeners who the English Defence League might be? They're, they're a racist, you know, a racist uh, sort of nativist organisation. They're an overtly racist um, organisation that would normally be regarded as, you know, unacceptable, beyond the fringe. Of, of but sort of, sort of uh, in, the, in the following in the footsteps of like the big, you know, 1970s, 1980s, like National Front. National uh, Front, British National Party. Yeah, absolutely exactly. in that sort of tradition. But they're very much fringe, not the sort of people who ever win seats in Parliament, very much fringe. And, and they'd clearly worked with them. Now, what was interesting in, in around 2010, 2011, you can actually see in, in, in the Jewish press 
you know, all the nice liberal centrist people coming out and saying, hang on, we, we really mustn't be demonstrating with these people. This is wrong. Uh, you know, and they were quite clear about that at the time, you know, that we reject this strategy. But it means that when it came to 2016, 17, 18, they knew damn well who these people were. They'd mm. argued with them previously. And there was just a sort of conspiracy of silence. We were all going to pretend that these were nice champions of of anti-racism, whereas they, you know, they... they You've got to be careful of my words legally, but they'd certainly been in bed with people who were absolutely overt and, and aggressive Islamophobes. So how does this all start shaking out? I kind of want to still walk through the timeline yeah, here. It's got a chronology as going. We're, yeah, because there's a kind of... A big, um, not a turning point, but a, it hits a fever pitch with a BBC program that that um, airs on BBC Panorama, which I don't think our, I think our American audience might not understand exactly the kind of weight that that sort that program had. Um, maybe you can explain a little bit. Yes, that. I mean, uh, I would PBS sixty minutes be an equivalent. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure. I mean, you, you know, the BBC is this unique and rather strange phenomenon, this publicly funded um, you know, beer myth that sits at the heart of the British media landscape and carries enormous influence, particularly with nice, you know, white middle class people. You know. yeah. um, and it, but it's enormously powerful, the BBC. And so it really does have to be very responsible in how it exercises this power. And really, this panorama, it's its main news and current affairs strand. Um, normally, it does hour-long documentaries, but it extended to an hour, for, half an hour-long documentaries. It extended to an hour on this occasion. This was July 2019. And it really was the final nail in the coffin of Corbyn's reputation on this issue. Um, and um, it, it, it was called "Is Labour Anti-Semitic?" and the the answer was fairly clear. Um, <laughs> I know what, a, what, a, what an incredible question! Just really like, going for it with that one, I, by the way. I, yeah, exactly. Richard, I will say this: the entire Corbyn anti-Semitism saga has been one of the greatest examples of the "Have you quit beating your wife?" question mm. that I think I've, which is, by the way, one of my favorite questions. I won't be asking you, but I do usually ask mm. our guests. It's an incredible mm. question, really hard to get out of. But uh, this the the panorama title was uh, fantastic in terms of if 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 that's the metric, yeah yeah no no exactly and um, it really did absolutely destroy him. Now you know as I watched it uh, at the time, I remember thinking, well, hang on, uh, I'm not sure about this. I mean, it operated on two levels. Um, one was again, if you actually picked it apart, it was taking it as given. That anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Yes. Okay. Uh, if you picture, but even if you accepted that logic, a lot of the journalism was very questionable. Now, it rather looks to me as if they had a problem that as they got into the final stages of the edit, they noticed that they were rather lacking in concrete examples of people being anti-Semitic. And, and so in our program, we, we pick this panorama apart. And I could have spent longer picking that panorama apart, but I, you know, there's only so much time I could dedicate to it. But mm -hmm. we show that two of the stories of people being hideously anti-Semitic were simply untrue. Um, you know, they, they were they were they were simply not true stories, and, and not even not even I, I you know I've, I've watched this program. I know what you're talking about, but like it's it's not even for our listeners. It's not untrue from like a oh well you maybe interpreted this different. They are they are clear and like pretty 
Yeah. Easily identifiable. Well, this 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 British this Labour Party investigator claims to have gone to Liverpool. This is one of them. He claims to have gone to Liverpool. He's conducting an investigation into a constituency there, which there have been complaints about. And he says, you know, he's doing these disciplinary interviews, and he says, as as this woman leaves the room, she and there are almost tears in his eyes. It's quite a performance. She turns and she says, "Are you from Israel?" And he says, "What can you do? What can you say?" Is this anti-Semitism that bubbles up the whole time. Now, anyway, these two little old ladies, two little old Jewish ladies in Liverpool yes. are Which, watching this program and they're thinking, hang on, I recognise that conversation. He's talking about us because all the details fit precisely with, with mm-hmm. it. It's clearly about them. Um, and fortunately, these two elderly ladies, Rika and Helen, had had the very good sense, like all the other people that were interviewed on Merseyside, had had the very good sense to record the interview. And they dug out the recording. And uh, she doesn't, of course she doesn't say, are you from Israel? Why would she say, are you from Israel? Apart from the else, they had no idea this fellow was Jewish. Um, What she says is, which branch are you from? As in, which branch of the Labour Party are you from? Which constituency um, are are you from? So it clearly you know, just wasn't true. They hadn't mentioned that the two people in question were Jewish, and they they completely mis, misquoted them. Um, there was another one where the, this woman said, "Every the abuse, I, the anti-Semitism I received in the Labour Party was every day people saying to me, um, Hitler was right, Hitler didn't go far enough. Okay. Right. Now, if you're watching this, you're thinking, hang on, there is no Labour Party environment in the world. I mean, it's just about conceivable that a, a, a mentally ill individual might stand up at a Labour Party meeting and say that. It's it's just about within the bounds of conceivability. The idea that it would be said every day without people taking action, without something being done about it, it's, it's just ludicrous. It's just patently ludicrous. Uh, listen, I've been in a lot of freak show political meetings in my life. Yeah. I think I've spent about 50% of my yeah. fucking life in freak show political meetings with, I will say, at least identifiable by me, crazy people in them. And I've never heard someone say something that even remotely approaching Hitler was right, let alone every day. And people said a lot of crazy shit. Yeah, but and also it's very easy to check. You 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 Googled, and you know we did it, and it's there immediately. You Google, and you show this, the googling. You Google this woman's name, and you put Hitler was right. And there was an incident when she was at university before Corbyn was leader of the of the Labour Party, where you know where some revolting individual had put up posters around the university campus saying Hitler was right. She had um, campaigned against this and got them removed. I mean, you know, presumably they were just removed anyway. Um, but it was quite clear that the. the it was the far right. It was nothing to do with the Labour Party. Now, right. this is the one area where the, the BBC has sort of held its hand up. It said her comments became mixed up in the editing. All right. Oh, class. We do that I all the time. I hate when interviewees' comments get mixed up in the editing. How does yeah. an, how could an yeah. editor just famously always getting mixed up with their edits? I, I, I sucked that dude's fucking dick once. And I, how, can I just say that I, I know the editor on that film. I've worked with him. He's a, he's a decent, good professional. And I, I certainly hope they weren't throwing him to the wolves on this because it won't it won't have been his initiative. You know, an editor yeah. puts the words together as he's told to. So it would have been the producer will have right. mixed the words up in the editing, not the, the actual editor. Well, I won't, ma- let, I won't make you do that, but I'll say that I do think that, that yes, they were throwing the editor under the bus there because... Yeah. The BBC, I mean, just with those two examples, it's so obvious that any journalist would have checked, would have like called those, those, uh, you know, interviewees and been like, is that what you said? 
and well, then you, had you a would take have, and and you know would have seen it wasn't. Now, you this know, is really it comes back to what you were saying, Brace, about by the summer of two thousand and nineteen, you could say what you liked about Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, it's like dealing with North Korea. You could have said he'd strapped his sister-in-law across the mouth of a it's, cannon. And it's very similar. Last yeah, in the pieces in Islington, you know. I mean, it, it, killed you know, his cousins, every cousin right. in the world, yeah. or whatever. In yeah, Jeremy yeah. Corbyn's Labour Party, they make us do, you know, they yeah, yeah exactly. No, it was yeah, ludicrous, it, and how this passed through the BBC's editorial and legal processes is, I mean, the really, it's quite disgraceful the BBC is not having an internal soul searching about this because it's disgraceful. Now, the BBC is still defending the the story about, um, are you from Israel? It's, it's yes. line of argument. And this is, I, I, bear with me here. This is seriously the line of argument that the BBC- I read the letter forward. in The Guardian, so, I, yeah. I, I, I'm, so I'm familiar with how silly this is. The, our story is not definitely untrue because these two elderly Jewish ladies might be a pair of brazen liars. Their, their defense is that they, 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 they asked the Israel question after the recording is switched off, which, you know, you, you listen to the, the closing section of the recorded interview. It's absurd. You know, it wouldn't make any sense for them to return to the subject. But also, most importantly, the two of them absolutely flatly and firmly deny it. Which um, you would think would make it into the reporting. Oh, these the people that we're reporting on deny this ever yeah, happened. Yeah, but they were never asked. They never. Asked. The, the, the thing is, the thing that's odd about that program, if you're making telly, and I think this is true, even more of telly than most journalistic mediums, you crave the tangible. Okay, you'd crave the concrete. It's what television loves. You you drift off the minute people are talking in generalities. All right. Mm -hmm. So when I'm interviewing people, I'm very irritating. I am always stopping them, saying, "No, no, tell me what happened to you." Tell me what you experienced, yeah. what you saw. And, and this panorama is very odd because if you watch, actually watch it, it contains very, very few examples of named people being anti-Semitic anti to other mm. named people. It does this very odd thing, the program. It has a whole bunch of interviewees who are talking directly to camera in a sort of testimonial way. Young Jewish people, very articulate, um, often on the verge of tears and, and very upset about things and so on. They're all anonymous, okay? They're all anonymous. Um, one of them, I think, gives her name, but, you know, the, she, she says it as she's talking, but other than that, they're all anonymous. And you're certainly not told that they are, in fact, the board of the Jewish labor movement, which is the, the, the sort of group within the Labour Party, which was leading the sort of charge against Corbyn. Now, you know, these people's points of view are perfectly, um, you know, you, they have a right to their point of view and a right to give their point of view. Um, but you, you, if people are officers in an organization which has a crucial part in the story, is a crucial player in the story. You have to tell the viewers that. It's, it's basic journalism. I mean, the only one who wasn't, or virtually the only one who wasn't a past or present board member of the Jewish Labour movement, movement was the head of public communications at the Jewish Board of Deputies. I mean, to, to present that person as an anonymous vox pop is farcical. And it matters all the more because there was a, a rival Jewish group within the Labour Party, Jewish mm. Voice for Labour, who we interviewed people from. Now, you, watching the Panorama programme, you would have had no inkling that there was a Jewish group in the Labour Party that supported Corbyn and rejected this narrative. 
Uh, and so those two things together, the exclusion of Jewish Voice for Labour, which is, you know, similar to Jewish Voice for Peace, I think, in America, um, the exclusion of, of, of that group and the anonymizing of the Jewish labour movement interviewees, well, it was, I think, profoundly misleading. Now, you know, the BBC has decided it's comfortable with that. I, I've made over 20 films for Dispatches, which is the Channel 4 sort of rival to Panorama. So I know how these programs are made. You know, I've spent much of my life sitting in sweaty edit rooms with lawyers, having extremely painful conversations with lawyers about dots and commas. They, I, I, My blood runs cold at the thought of what Channel 4 lawyers would have done to me if, if they'd turned to me and said, who are these people? And I'd say, well, this is who they are. That have got well, you obviously you have to tell people that you can't just anonymize them. Um, and the other issue in the program, of course, was was uh, the editing of an uh, an important email, which was just absolutely gutted um, uh, and edited in a way that was seemed to us anyway entirely misleading. So anyway, we made four very concrete critiques of right. the program, which is always the way to do it. I mean, you, if you if you go into a sort of scattergun this is a horrible, unfair program, whatever. You know, you have to be very specific in what you're accusing yeah. accusing them of. So we, we made four very specific critiques, which I don't feel they've ever satisfactorily responded to. The BBC seems to have taken the view, look, no one's talking about this, so if we just keep quiet, no one will notice. No, I absolutely are. think that that, I mean, if you read their responses to your to your pieces, to your, you know, to the segments, um, they're they're all very like uh, you know very broad very vague um usually i think when i've seen publications respond to claims of like uh you know uh, misrepresentation or you know even going further into like plagiarism whatever like anything that like a, a um journal you know a journalistic outlet would respond to very would take very seriously right they're usually very specific in their uh, responses. Very like where you say this, we have you know you make this claim. This is how we're refuting it. This is where our editors come in. We have this, we have that. You know, backing up all of this stuff, especially when you're talking about something as potent and uh, you know wild as is the Labour Party anti-Semitic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, the leader of Her Majesty's opposition. I mean, it couldn't be yes. more important. You know, and it does seem that. The BBC, and I would, you know, I just, I'd argue, as we kind of were saying at the beginning of this interview, the kind of British, you know, political hive mind or media, you know, conglomerate in general wants to sweep this whole thing under the rug. And, you know, if people aren't talking about it, if no one's paying attention, then it didn't happen. And that actually all of these maneuvers and insane mm -hmm. kind of, um, you know, right-wing usurping that was happening within the party that we all have evidence of through these chat logs, through these, you know, all of these internal memos and files. None of this happened, actually. <laughs> you know, there was just a kind of clear sort of, uh, you know, the history of the Labour Party is sort of, it was just uh, Tony Blair and then and then Keir Starmer. <laughs> and, it's, and that it's very, seems to be, you know, what everyone kind of want, has decided on. And it's very alien. It's it's very unhealthy democratically because whether you agree with the radical left or, or not, I mean, it's entirely up to you. But but 
you know, there was this huge upsurge of enthusiasm. 40% of people voted for Corbyn. And basically, the British political and media establishment said, your engagement with the political process is not welcome. Go away, please. We'll carry yeah. on running things. And that seems to be enormously unhealthy. unhealthy. Uh, and I think you know, we'll pay a price for that in years to come, particularly since it's been said in particular to, to people of colour and in particular to Muslims. If You, you know, I, I, for young Muslims, they have been told very clearly, you, you do not engage with the British political process unless you are prepared to make a series uh, of compromises, um, you know, which particularly at the current time, many, many would find um, unacceptable. So, I mean, just to go back very quickly to the panorama, um, to be fair, the program's presenter, we do seem to have struck a nerve with him because he writes enormous, endless <laughs> articles being extremely yes. rude about myself. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, I, that's what I was going to mention. You, you have some personal beef there. <laughs> well, yeah, well, there you go. I, I rise above these things. But anyway, the um, and most recently, he wrote an extraordinary 30,000-word piece in, in Fathom. God! Which, which is, is a series of articles, 30,000. If I have to spend 30,000 words defending something I've done, I'm thinking I'm probably on slightly weak ground. Yeah. But anyway, 30,000 words. And he wrote it for Fathom, which I think probably most of your um, readers I'm, are I'm, familiar with. Fathom is the in-house journal of BICOM, which is an Israeli lobbying organization. So it's an interesting choice in itself. Uh, and he, he writes, I mean, please, John Ware, Fathom, if, if any of your readers or uh, listeners are really interested in this, go away and read it. I mean, I, he, he, I'm one of the principal subjects of it, and I only skim read it, you know. <laughs> I mean, but, but this is the interesting thing. This is the interesting thing. Um, this enormous and powerful echo chamber that was built to destroy Jeremy Corbyn, just poof, in a, in a puff of smoke, disappeared the day mm. he, he, he was gone. And I think I, I sense it's very frustrating for, for, for John Ware because he writes these things and there is no pickup whatsoever. <laughs> He's a man howling into the, into the void. And I think there are two reasons for that. One, you know, people look at these clips about his film and think, well, hang on, <laughs> that does sound rather dodgy. And I'm not yeah. sure I really want to go up to the ramparts to, to defend that. But two, because it has served its purpose, it's it's disappeared. Now, you know, I know to a degree, you know, and I, one of the things with the Labour files, and I really want to impress this on your listeners, is absolute conspiracy of silence in the British media mm -hmm. about it. Absolute determination never to mention the Labour files. In British media. So I would say to your, your listeners, you, you can see it on YouTube, The Labour Files. My program on the anti-Semitism thing was the second program, The Crisis. Please, please, please go do go and watch it and share it because it's like some sort of subversive subterranean book, this, that is only going to spread by word of mouth. Please, please, please do um, watch it. But, well, uh, I, but 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 so we're, we're we're trapped in a bubble. We're trapped in a left wing bubble. But it's a pretty big bubble, and it's mm -hmm. a pretty loud yeah. bubble. And it, it, it it's it, and it's a bubble that's growing. Whereas John Ware in defending his film, absolute silence, deathly silence. So it's quite interesting the contrast. Yeah, and as our listeners probably know, Corbyn was not only um, you know replaced by Keir Starmer, but uh, he is no longer under the whip of the Labour Party. Right? He's been is he been expelled or suspended from the? Well, party? he's been well, he's been suspended from the Parliamentary Party. He's had the whip 
withdrawn. They, they did expel him from the party, but they, they realized they simply couldn't do it. So he is, strictly speaking, still a member of the Labour Party, but he, he won't be allowed to stand as a Labour candidate at the next election. It is almost certain he will stand as an independent, and everyone tells me he will win in that constituency. Everyone yeah. I know, of course, is a friend of Jeremy's, so, um, you know, whether that's true or not, I, we shall I, see. I, I but certainly like he's, he's, a, he's a very popular, he's a very popular constituency MP. But now he has been replaced by Keir Starmer, and there has been this as as you sort of also a through line throughout these three episodes, a purge of not only Jeremy Corbyn's allies, but anybody who might be sort of sympathetic to that mode of politics. Yeah. Um, and particularly a, a a tool in in using this, just it's similar in the way that that the the anti-Semitism crisis was this kind of manufactured convenient tool for for uh, many opponents of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, the intermingling of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism's definitions, and the blurriness that the the, the purposeful sort of smudging of the uh, of the borders between those two things, uh, has been a really effective tool for cleansing the Labour Party of of anybody who might not be, uh, a, you know, a, a Keir Starmer legionnaire, and um, you know, they seem like to have been extremely effective in uh, in. Uh, basically just demolishing the ranks of the left from the Labour Party. I mean, it's it's basically, it seems like it's a complete non-entity entity now. It, it's absolutely ruthless. It, it, it's extraordinary. I'll come on to that in a second, just to very, in a way, quickly finish off absolutely. With, with Corbyn. Um, one of the interesting things that happens is right at the beginning of um, Starmer's reign, he appoints this man called Martin Ford to look into all this. You know, let's really pick apart what happened in the Labour Party mm-hmm. um, with, with with racism, anti-Semitism and factionalism and so on. And Martin, Martin, Martin Ford is black. He's Barbadian. And, I, you know, um, and they don't seem to have considered that with the black face came a black sensibility and also also integrity. Um, so Martin did what we've done, we did. Um, and, you know, I, I, I actually now know Martin quite well. And, um, you know, he, he looked at all the internal documentation as we did and, and said, hang on, <laughs> this isn't quite how it was being reported, is it? And rather to the annoyance of the Labour Party, I produced this report, which was, you know, it does a fair old bit of both sidesism and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but it essentially it says out. these people aren't, you know, there was a disgraceful demonization that went, went on of these people that wasn't fair. And crucially, it rejects the idea that the leadership under Corbyn intervened in the disciplinary process um, to protect anti-Semites. It rejects that fairly clearly. And that, that was the core accusation against, um, against Corbyn. So, and of course, you know, he, he, Martin eventually gave an interview to us for The Labour Files. It sort of became, it's a very short one, but it's the fifth episode of The Labour Files. As it were, entirely ignored, again, entirely mm-hmm. ignored. He suffered the same fate we did, just sort of cast into the outer outer darkness where, where we're all just sitting around talking, talking to each other. But anyway, yes, so Keir Starmer takes over The Labour Party. And it is quite extraordinary, the... the centralization the the rigid lack of democracy in the party yes they they they've destroyed the corbynite left but it goes rather beyond that i mean yeah. the, you know some of the people who are who are, who are being expelled and whose lives are being destroyed you know weren't really even on the corbynite left they've done this extraordinary thing they came up with a group of organizations which they prescribed left wing organizations which mm-hmm. if you if you were a member of them or if you expressed support for them it was incompatible with membership of the Labour Party. Right. So if you if you you know if you if you express support for Labour against the witch hunt or something, um, or uh, then you were booted out 
uh, of the body. Now, they did a very clever thing. They said this would happen even if you had expressed support for this organization before it was prescribed. So, you know, people who might have tweeted something vaguely favorable to some obscure left-wing group in 2016 suddenly found themselves expelled from the Labour Party. It was extraordinary. Whole swathes of people could be expelled. Now, this was so patently unjust that the Labour Party took the trouble to introduce a new rule in its rule book that, that says that in its disciplinary processes, the principles of fairness and natural justice do not apply. Mm. I mean, that must be the only political word party in the world which takes the trouble to ex, you know, actually actually express that. But I think I think it's you know, if you, the starting point of this conversation was this moment in 2015, 16, 17, a profound discontent with the, the status quo um, and unhappiness with politics as it was. And you now have a situation where we're going into the election with an entirely discredited government. I mean, you know, the, the, the Conservatives are going to lose whatever happens next time around, quite clearly. But an opposition which is just sort of slavishly adhering to all the political conventions that got us in the mess in the first place, that is, yeah. you know, ferociously rejecting anything radical or original. And, you know, a few journalists, more mainstream journalists, have written recently about how this process, the process of selection of new MPs, means that all sorts of the most interesting characters you've had in the Labour Party in the past would never be selected this time around. Anyone, anyone who is remotely radical or free-thinking is being weeded out. I mean, the Labour Party, and God knows that the Parliamentary Labour Party was hardly a radical, interesting body beforehand, but, um, you know, the, the, it's very depressing, the thought of what the, the Parliamentary Labour Party will actually consist of after the next election. And that next election should be probably coming sometime in 2024. I mean, Britain... <laughs> As Americans might know, they do it a little bit different over there. Uh, but in 2024, at the very latest, it seems like 2025. Uh, and from what I understand, the smart money is on Keir Starmer becoming prime minister. Oh, yeah, uh, he will. And with an overall majority, yeah. yeah. W- what, what are some of the key differences between him and Corbyn? Oh, God. I mean, they, 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 where, where do you start? I mean, you know, Star, Starmer is a managerialist. He's, he's a profoundly sort of establishment figure. He was director of public prosecutions, um, which means he's sort of the head of the, um, the head of the sort of, you know, the, the legal um, service for five years, during which period he developed a very close relationship with his sort of um, contemporaries in, in Washington. Um, you know, very much an Atlanticist. Yeah. Um, very, very much tied in to the, the, the conventional Western security um, establishment. Um, and one of the great things Corbyn did, after the great crash of 2008, in Britain, the Conservative government imposed austerity. It said you know, the only way out of this mess is to have austerity. Now, Obama at the time was was you know, tearing his hair out about this because he very much reached different conclusions. And, you know, the, the, there's economic debates to be had about this. If you're in a hole economically, stop digging. You know, often spending is precisely what you need to do in that situation. Anyway, whatever. Um, Corbyn blew away the the, the, the the sort of consensus on on austerity. That's now come back with a vengeance. Right. Um, Starmer takes it as given that you mustn't promise any sort of radical spending. The great anti-inflation um, thing that Biden introduced um, you, you couldn't happen here because Starmer's tied himself into all sorts of um, 
financial pledges and so on. Yeah. And again, again, the disappointing thing is you see him interviewed on the BBC and ITN and by The Guardian, and no one says, well, hang on, hang on. These things aren't given facts. There's an entirely different way of doing things. Why are you slavishly adhering to this? And also, we're back to the politics of triangulation. You know, the the the, the assumption that um, for a left wing party, the further right you move, the more support you get. The further left you lose, the less support you get. Um, now, you know, one thing that 2017 did was blow that out of the water. Um, the, the the when when Corbyn almost wins the election, I, I, you know. That's not to say that what the Labour Party should do is move radically left and more people will vote for it. I don't think that's the case at all. But we're clearly in a much more complex political and, and less linear political era now. But, you know, Starmer's just gone straight back to, um, you know, the more you're in the centre, the more people will vote for you. And again, this is just entirely unquestioned. You see him interviewed by the BBC and they all sit there nodding sagely as if only mm. sort of immature student radicals believe anything different. It's all very, we, we've all retreated straight back into the, the straitjacket of the politics yeah. that got us all in, the, in, the, in this mess in the first place. Yeah, it feels like a weird pantomime of a status quo from a, like, from the past. It doesn't even feel like it's committed to getting back to that. It just feels mm. like it wants to kind of, um, it's like a weird political theater of it, if that makes any it's repeating, sense. It's repeating history as fast, isn't it? Whatever that quote is. Um, yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. It's what, what Starmer clearly, you know, what their role model is, is Blair. Okay. Right. Now, um, you know, Blair, the economy everyone, is in such a different place. No, the, the, everything is in yes. such a different yes. place. Everything uh, is in such a different place. It's just a completely different social context and... Yeah. Given yeah. the precariousness of the British economy, I mean, it just seems... Yeah, yeah. And also... Very dangerous. And, and, you know, I think the Labour right knows they have a problem with this. Blair, whatever one thinks about Blair, was a, was a great political performer. And yes. it's like Clinton. He was a great communicator. He was a great performer. He had sparkle and pizzazz and what have you. Yeah. Starmer so doesn't. I mean, it's, you know, talk about charisma bypass. He, he, he is extraordinarily wooden. He, he's lacking all the qualities. He looks like a nutcracker. He does. Oh, he does he's a, greatly resemble a nutcracker. Yeah, but he, he, uh, but he and he's unpopular. He's he's you know he's he's remarkably un, unpopular given the totally free ride he gets in the press. Uh, and but given, that's what's so know, ironic. No, it's like the the Labour Party under Starmer, after all of his purges, is smaller than ever. Is more like I mean, if we want to talk about how wildly uh, how how. Uh, you know, big and flourishing and wide the Labour Party was under Corbyn. Keir himself is incredibly unpopular. No one likes him. Everyone feels kind of stuck with him, it seems like. Mm -hmm. And yet, Labour will be elected in a landslide. So this is a very weird contradiction, um, both within the party and then sort of like kind of how the party is is sort of situated to just the the sort of general politics of Britain at the current moment. Uh, and I, th I think many around Starmer are aware of the dangers of this. I mean, okay, everyone loathes the Conservatives at the moment, but the party gets into power and it, it needs to make things different. Yeah. You know, and, and it's and it, tied itself yeah. absolutely rigidly to all these fiscal and financial rules and goals yeah. and so on. And I, I think they know that the great challenge they've got is is that what they can't have is after four years, everyone looks around and says, well, everything's as crap as it was when you arrived. You know, yeah, four which years is if you're possible. lucky. Yeah. And, and, and there, you know, if you actually look at their selling points to the British public at the moment, it's entirely managerialism. It will, will be less corrupt and useless than the Tories, which I should hope they will be. I mean, it would be hard to be less 
you know, not be less corrupt and, and useless than the than the Conservatives are. But yes, I, I mean, I, and I think they know they've got a problem here. That you know, what are they actually going to do to make anything different? And, well, and if, the answer if, is if, if Western, clear. if the Western Europe in the past two decades has been any indication, I think that a uh, sort of centrist, liberal, uh, former Social Democratic Party taking the reins of power in a Western European nation will go very well for everybody in that country. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if we're taking the example of like, uh, I, yeah, it's it's it's. I I, I feel I, I have no idea what's going to happen, but uh, it has just been it's astounding to see uh, just how effective they are when they want to you know, purge people from the party when they want to completely change um, the course of, of where things are going in the body politic in general, right? Um, and sort of revert to this, uh, this facsimile of this like early 2000s, 1990s kind of technocratic uh, liberalism. Um, I mean, they, they, were, they were really astounding. And I, I think they're, they're deeply valuable lessons to be learned from how they went about this. Um, I, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for me, there the were two things driving me, really. One, one was, you know, if, if, you know I'm, I'm not a, at all convinced how good a prime minister Jeremy Corbyn would have been. And if people don't like Jeremy Corbyn and don't want to vote for him, fine. Uh, and if people on the right of the Labour Party want their faction to be in control rather than his fine but people do need to the press needs to be honest you you can't just lie about people and then trust the press to 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 lie about them for you you know the, the, the in a functioning democracy you need a competent and honest press and you can't just do this to any radical any radical um politician i think the left also you know for, for having waded my way through these um disciplinary documents the left also ha- has to confront one or two things. The, the blueprint for how Blair, uh, how Corbyn was destroyed, can be wheeled out again and again. It's like a sort mm-hmm. of weapon battle tested in, in Gaza, mm-hmm. you know, because um, it was incredibly effective. And and what clearly failed was to take it as being in good faith and to try and argue back rationally. You you if you actually look at how the human rights organizations deal with this when they, you know, Israel and its the lobby goes for them and says you're an anti-Semite, they just rigidly stand their ground. They root it in international law. You know, they say Israel is an apartheid state. This is wrong. We oppose it. And they just don't allow themselves to be knocked off course. And I and Corbyn went down a very slippery road of sort of apology and appeasement, which I think was absolutely disastrous. Uh, and it effectively, and I think this is the other reason it, it, it mattered beyond the sort of internal politics of Western political parties, the, the, the Palestinian people were just thrown to the wolves in all this. And, and it's, if you want to look at why the British political media class is in such a morally obscene position, about the the current you know wholesale slaughter of small children in 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 Gaza, you have to look back to that period when um, they allowed any clear articulation of the Palestinian cause to be sort of demonised, and you know which all feeds into the dehumanisation of the Palestinian people. If you are tainting the Palestinian cause with the toxicity of anti-Semitism, which has such dreadful resonances in the sort of Western mind for, you know, for very good and obvious reasons, you are opening the door to the dehumanization of those people. And you can't understand 
the West's complicity in what is done the, to the Palestinian people unless unless you understand that. You know, and that, so the consequences of, of this are enormous. It's, you know, what are we at now? 30,000 people dead in Gaza. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these things matter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, these things matter. Well, Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I want to implore our listeners to watch all five episodes of The Labor Files. Uh, just, I mean, I think probably the easiest way to find it is just Google Al Jazeera Labor Files. They're all available on the website. It's on YouTube. It's all on YouTube. We'll on link YouTube. to it directly yeah. from, from the show notes. So you can oh, just great. click right Actually, there. That's the easiest way to do it. I don't even know. <laughs> okay. why, we always do. I don't know why. <laughs> and it's always and, good to get to, you know, hone your Google skills. So it's maybe an interesting try thing about it. Check against what we've got in the description. The interesting thing about it, although it, it, it was entirely ignored, the second film in particular, you know, got hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. But then when, when the assault on the Gaza Strip started, it just took off again. It's, mm. you know, it's been shooting up in terms of views. My son tells me this is all to do with algorithms. I don't really understand these things. But it's very interesting. There's clearly a large new audience that's finding it relevant in the wake of the, you know, the attack on the Gaza Strip. Well, I think our audience will definitely find it relevant if they haven't watched it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you, ladies and gentlemen, you have two tasks to do right now. One is to watch all five parts of The Labor Files in the link below, and two it's to sign up for the Truanon January 6th board game, also at the other link below. You should be able to differentiate the two. With that being said, my name is Brace. I'm Liz. We are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky. And this has been Truanon. Happy 2024. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.